Come to me, Jesus says, and I will give you rest. There are few gifts that may be more sweet and more needed than this constant refrain in Scripture to pause for a minute and let the world turn on its own for a while. It can be all too easy to think that busy is faithful and weariness is obedience, but Jesus tells a different story. God holds the heavy burden and offers us a light one. God does the heavy lifting and leaves us with an easy yoke. God has got this. We can rest. Come to me, Jesus said, and I will give you rest. So today is the midpoint. In a worship series, we're exploring rest through the rhythms of Sabbath, and particularly how we're heeding God's call to rest. How heeding God's call to rest is a transformative gift, and not just something good to do, but this practice that shapes and forms us as faithful people. Now, we're tackling it a bit backwards. And so last week, we considered an instruction that came later on in the book of Deuteronomy about how we're supposed to rest every seven years, one year out of every seven, and to forgive all debts in that year. It was a reminder to consider our belongings as blessings, to remember that we are blessed to be a blessing, and to remember that caring for one another doesn't leave us with less, but creates a community where we can all be God's hands and feet. Today, we turn to the weekly pattern of rest as brought to us by the book of Deuteronomy, one of the Ten Commandments delivered by Moses to all of God's people. This rest may just be an important thing. Let us pray. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I imagine that work ethic, like so many other things, is something that gets passed on from parents to children. So I might well be toast, because my parents are two of the hardest working people I have ever met. Rest is an incredible challenge in a world that prioritizes measuring and comparing and competing and striving and producing and consuming. But fortunately, my father loved bikes. Both of my parents found ways to prioritize rest in their lives, and this often meant that my father would spend hours of his weekend in the garage with a bike on a stand, partially disassembled for some maintenance task or another. And so I followed my father into cycling, Loved the casual rides and warm summer days and the longer day-long tours we would go on. And my father taught me to keep my bike in good working condition. And the garage felt like a sanctuary on those days. There'd be music playing from the portable radio or just the noisy silence of traffic and birdsong coming in through the open garage door. Nothing was rushed and everything happened in order. The tools would come down off of the shelf and out of the bins, and they'd be splayed across the concrete floor of the garage for the weekends. Now, bikes are simple machines when it comes down to it. There's wheels, and there's pedals, and there's gears, and there's cabling. And yet, there is always something to do. I learned how to reposition brake pads, how to adjust the gear shift, how to care for and replace the drivetrain, how to patch tires, and how to repack the front and rear wheel ball bearings. He had never given much thought to what was going on inside of the wheels 
of a bike. But I would come to learn that on the inside of the wheels, there in the wheel axle, there are these six or eight tiny steel ball bearings that are held in place by adjustable cones. And they are what allow the wheel to spin so freely around the axle and to go so smoothly down the road and go so unnoticed until at some point they need some maintaining because dirt and grime makes its way inside of the wheel and into those components and starts getting in the way of the smooth motion of the bearing since you'd have to take the whole thing apart, clean it, and reassemble it. And so this is what I learned to do how to disassemble the wheel and clean off the ball bearings with a degreaser that smelled rather of citrus. And I learned how to press fresh grease into the chamber where the ball bearings were and that it's impossible to do that and keep your hands clean at the same time. And I learned that reassembly required some finesse, that you needed to be tight enough but not too tight. Too loose means your wheel knocks about its axle. Too tight means it doesn't spin freely. And I learned that when you get it just right, when the bearings are in there with fresh grease and it's honed in on just where it needs to be, you hold the wheel in one hand and you spin it with the other. It spins and it spins and it spins and you could believe that it would spin forever. That always seemed like the goal to me in repacking ball bearings and in everything else, to keep going forever and ever, never stopping and never resting. Maintenance, it seemed like, was a waypoint on a never-ending ride, a disappointing detour that was needed whenever the road started to take its toll. Rest and renewal and restoration were things that you needed for when you couldn't go any further, a necessary requirement so that you could get back out and keep going for as long as you possibly could. But that wasn't the rhythm that my father kept in those weekends in the garage. He loved going out for bike rides, and he loved working and maintaining his bike, which he did more than seemed necessary. It seemed like there was something to cherish there in the garage, peacefully tending both to the machine and to the impatient teenager who frequently missed the point of it all. It turns out we were not there to rush back onto the road as if life were a race and we were falling behind. Those quiet days were a source of life all on their own. The Sabbath, right, uh, Rabbi Abraham Herschel once wrote, is a day for the sake of life. Man is not a beast of burden, and the Sabbath is not for the purpose of enhancing the efficiency of his work. As firmly as we believe that rest is important, we often, just seem, we often seem to lack a robust understanding of why it might be such a highly prioritized command. It's included in the Ten Commandments, and we would hardly hedge around the instruction not to murder, and yet we can absolutely understand why someone might, take a, might not take a day off out of every seven from toil to rest. I mean, what if you have enough energy to work that seventh day or the eighth day or the ninth day? What if you need to work that extra day to make sure you don't fall behind. But the purpose of the Sabbath is neither because we need to rest up from all the work that we've done, or because we need to rest up for all the work that we have yet to do. If that was our goal, we could surely stretch further than six days and rest much less, or at least we would surely try. 
But something more valuable is at play in this commandment. In a somewhat famous remark, one rabbi said that more than the Jews have kept the Sabbath, the Sabbath has kept the Jews. It is not an arbitrary or capricious thing that God asks of the people of God, but in fact a practice that draws a people together and reminds them who and whose they are. It pulls the faithful adherent out of the constant rushing and the oppressive pressures of this world to live, if just for a single day, in another world entirely. And it comes in the middle of the Ten Commandments, which we need to pause and talk about for just a moment. Because all throughout my life, I have thought of the Ten Commandments as something concrete and resolute, this single, central, agreed-upon moral foundation of our faith without ever actually giving it much thought. It had never occurred to me to ask when it came up in conversation whether we all agreed on what the Ten Commandments even were before we got around to asking what they meant. Now, the Ten Commandments are not the trickiest part of Scripture, not by a long shot, but we miss something if we think they function outside of the normal operation of Scripture. Scripture requires thoughtful and spirit-led interpretation to understand, consideration, and exploration. As with any scriptural instruction, there's a diversity of perspectives that we might bring to bear in the conversation. There's even a diversity in the naming of the Ten Commandments. For while Christian traditions describe them as the Ten Commandments, Jewish tradition refers to them as the Ten Utterances, or the Ten Statements, the Ten Spoken Things. And what are the Ten exactly? We're going to take a look for a moment at the Ten Commandments, which come first from the book of Moses. We're going to put them up on the screen. The words are going to be very small, but I've got some drawing on there, and I'll talk you through them as we go. This comes out of Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. It's just the first part on the slide so far. Moses has gone up Mount Sinai and has heard these instructions from the very voice of God, and God has helpfully inscribed them on two different stone tablets to take down to the people of God. Now, as the story continues, these tablets actually end up getting smashed and have to be rewritten because there's a whole little thing with two golden calves, and it's a whole thing, but that's not super important for today. What's important is that Moses heard these from God on a mountain, and they're written down, and everyone knows they are the ten something or others. But the differences begin at once as we read it to figure out what the ten even are. Let's take a look at the first little drawing on there. It's in the first three verses. I am the Lord your God. You must have no other gods before me. Do not make an idol for yourselves. Depending on your tradition, this is either the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments, or an introductory statement and the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, or an introductory statement and the first one commandment of the Ten Commandments. We all agree that it's important But we have some differences in understanding what the ten even are. There's a diversity in perspective that lends some value to our exploration. And as we continue, mark out where you'll find this commandment that we're most interested in today, the commandment about the Sabbath, which is usually either the third or the fourth commandment, depending on how you count. It takes up more room on the screen, you can see, than most of the other commandments, and not without reason. There's some explanation there for keeping the Sabbath. Because God kept the Sabbath in creation, it says here. And the size of it on the screen, the weight to the actual text as a part of the Ten Commandments is important because the 
commandment about the Sabbath is a critical part of the teaching as a whole, a central portion that actually stands in the middle of the Ten Commandments, one that looks forward and backwards from this position. Because the earlier commandments, the ones that come before the Sabbath, are all about God, about how we honor God. And the ones that come later, after the command about the Sabbath, are all about how we interact with one another. What do we do with our neighbor? And this commandment about the Sabbath ties the two together, that God and people should rest together in a pairing that is not unlike the two great commandments, that we should love God with all of our who we are, and that we should love our neighbors as ourselves. We're going to continue from here on to the next slide, which we'll see the rest of the Ten Commandments as they are written out in Exodus. And the diversity of numbering at the beginning evens out with the final verse, and we'll mark that out here. In the last verse there, there's either one commandment or more. See, this is the verse that talks about don't covet a neighbor's house, spouse, or stuff. And so either that's two commandments, or it's just one commandment, and it's all grouped in a various number of ways. It's a diversity of perspective that invites us into considering what God has to say for us today. It's not something that is just right out there for us to read and understand, but something for us to interpret and explore and find through the guiding of the community and of the Spirit of God. But the observant among us might notice that I'm pulling from an entirely different book than the one that Tony read for us today. This is all coming out of the book of Exodus and not the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy recounts the Ten Commandments a second time, and it's largely the same except for the instruction about the Sabbath. We're going to put Deuteronomy up on the screen. There's what you heard earlier today. Keep the Sabbath day and treat it as holy. It sounds very similar, but it's different in just a few key ways. We're going to highlight those on the screen for you. Start to the very first word. Exodus said to remember the Sabbath. Deuteronomy says to keep it, to guard it. Exodus didn't include the part later on that Deuteronomy does, that all people should rest just as the one who heard the commandment does. And then the long highlighted section at the end, the justification for why we should keep the Sabbath is entirely different. Exodus talks about creation, about how God created in six days and then created rest on the seventh day, and so we should also rest. But Deuteronomy talks about slavery, about how God rescued the people from slavery. There is a Jewish tradition that the commandments didn't change, that in fact God said to remember and to keep the Sabbath, those two different words, different between Exodus and Deuteronomy, God said both at the same time to Moses on the top of the mountain. We just happened to capture one of them in Exodus and one of them in Deuteronomy because, in fact, the texts are not in conflict. They're in harmony. Two voices speaking at the same time, a complementary message spoken in two different contexts that help us understand the depth and the perspective of why we should keep the Sabbath and an understanding that might speak into where we find ourselves today. See, on the one hand, Exodus is a book written about the people coming out of slavery in Egypt. To a people leaving slavery, exhausted from years of toil and work without rest. And so they are asked to remember the Sabbath. To remember that God has given them a gift. A gift that began in creation. To remember that they should have a day of rest. That they should always have had 
a day of rest from the very beginning of time. And so they would. The people were different in the book of Deuteronomy. It comes 40 years later after the people of God have wandered through the desert. The generation that had lived through slavery had passed on, and now Deuteronomy recounts the story of the Exodus and the telling of the Ten Commandments to a people standing on the edge of the Promised Land, a people ready to take ownership of the land, to set up a society, a people who now have some amount of privilege and possession. And so the Sabbath instruction is spoken differently. They need to be told to guard the Sabbath. Because when we have power and the potential to end up at the top instead of the bottom, well, where's the incentive to rest then? God has rescued the people from slavery, they are told. And they are not to fall back into slavery. And here, on the precipice of the promised land, well, they're not at risk for being enslaved, but they are now at risk of perpetuating the same system that enslaved them, now with them as the oppressors, perpetuating the same enslavement of those around them, asking too much of those beneath them to solidify their positions of privilege and security. That's how it was for Pharaoh, who used slave labor to protect his own power. For those at the top tend to do exactly that, to try to ensure that they have a stable footing. And so often the only way that we know how to do that is with continuous, never-ending work. In the way that Pharaoh saw the world, there was no rest for anyone, certainly not for the slaves, for the workers at the very bottom who toiled making bricks and buildings day after day with no rest, but also likely not for the taskmasters and the supervisors watching over the slaves, and certainly not for Pharaoh himself, who spent his days in fear and worry that all of what he had gathered for himself might be taken away, or that if he rested too much or too long, someone else would overcome and overtake him. There's this idea that comes about sometimes if we only work hard enough, if we only get far enough, well, then we can rest because we'll have enough. But history has gone to show from Pharaoh on throughout till today that those at the top do not rest for the very same thing that got them there. The continuous work doesn't stop when you're at the top. If you spend your days worrying that if you stop, that others will come after you and overtake you, then it never, ever ends. And so Pharaoh did not rest. And Pharaoh allowed no one else to rest either. And so the Israelite people, no longer in any danger of being enslaved, were still in danger of perpetuating the very same system that enslaved them. Letting themselves be at the top consumed with fear and worry that if they rested too long, and if they let anyone else rest too long, they would lose what they had. And so God says, remember, I brought you out of slavery. My strong hand, my strong arm 
I have saved you from this place, not to go back again. For there is a better way. It is to rest, to know that it is not what we have that secures us, but the God who holds us, that protects us. We do not find security in constant striving. We find it in the God who holds us close. We can rest, and others can overpass us. We can rest and lose the money we might have otherwise earned. We can rest because we have faith in the God who is bringing about something better. We can rest because it takes us out of that mindset, out of that whole worldview, and into another one. This is there in that text in Deuteronomy. It says, you must rest and also let those beneath you rest, your servants, your slaves, even your animals, that all might rest just as you, so that for a single day, once a week, you might live in a world where everyone is the same, where everyone rests, because everyone deserves to rest. You might live in a world that is as God intended it to be, where all are part of the same human family, the same community that cares for one another and that gives one another, or the place where we find life given by God, not because we have earned it, not because we have gone out and found it and worked for it, because this is what God gives to God's own creation. This is the invitation of the Sabbath command. For those who have worked too long and too hard, rest. Know that God gifts this to you. And for we who find ourselves on the other side of the world, more often at the top than at the bottom, rest just the same. We don't need to climb any longer. And in fact, climbing and working harder makes it more difficult for those we rely on. Can we live into a world where we protect and guard all people's right to rest? We're ensure that even the least among us are given that dignity, that blessing, given that respect and that honor. God says there at the center point of the Ten Commandments, do not live in a world as Pharaoh would make it seem, as those with power would make it seem, but in the world as I have created it. And in that world, we can rest. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, I invite you to stand as you are able and continue in worship with the singing of our next hymn.